It's episode 39 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. This week on the show, it's Christy Tillman. She's the Director of Communication Design at Slack. We discuss how new designers can break into the design profession, the role of mentorship, and if it's ever appropriate to do pro bono work to build a portfolio. All right, Christy, hey, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, look, I, um, this is a little bit of a kind of a podcasting trope where the um, where the host of the podcast apologizes for some weird background noise that's happening today. I don't know if you can hear this or not. I but, cannot. Okay, that's good. But it's, <laughs> I am recording from a place in London on a canal. There's a uh, it's called the Regent's Canal, and it kind of goes across the city of London. It's kind of this vestige of shipping before railroads. Like it's built in like the late 1700s or something. It's beautiful. It's really nice here. But there's these boats that go up and down the canal. And people live on them now. It's all you know recreational. And there's literally one right outside with its engine running. And <laughs> that's funny. I live right. Well, I probably shouldn't say where I live, but I live near a transportation port myself and I can hear the train tummy as well. So I, was, I hope you don't hear my trains. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we'll just consider it ambiance for our, for our conversation, the uh, transportation in major metropolitan cities uh, in the background. Um, anyway, it is, you know, generally sort of a romantic thing, having these boats going by and everything kind of nostalgic and whatnot, except of course, when I'm going to record and the boat is sitting outside, just running its engine, uh, <laughs> we'll try, we'll do our best. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for being on the show. You are the second, uh, person from Slack. What do you guys call yourself? Slackers? No, well, we don't, we don't do use not. that formally. You, so we are people <laughs> that work at Slack. <laughs> That's it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, that's good. All right. That's fair enough. Well, you're the second person that I found up for Slack. And, um, we had Anna Picard, uh, who does a lot of the voice of Slack. Uh, and you're more on the like design and communication side of Slack. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. But I work very closely with Anna and she's awesome. She is. She was great on the show. I really appreciated, uh, her perspective on, uh, how you sort of make things sound, um, the, 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 literally the voice that Slack communicates to, and especially in such a sort of communication heavy application, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, what, what is sort of the things that you have been looking after? Um, a lot of the brand design, mm. um, work, working on, um, print advertising, uh, basically any of the collateral, um, events with marketing, um, Slack.com homepage. So mm. basically, uh, any design that is not literally the product design yeah. I've been working on. That's great. You guys have done a remarkable job with that. Uh, ever since I got my my pair of Slack socks, I've been a huge fan of the brand. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I uh, what I'd love to get into a little bit is um, talking about design careers. I know you have. Oh. Uh, published and spoken a little bit out in public uh, about kind of getting started in careers, what it's like today, what it's like for different groups of people uh, today. Um, and, you know, I have touched on this from time to time in the podcast. I talked uh, not too long ago to uh, Dan Cederholm from Dribble, uh, And we talked a little bit about like, well, what is it like to do self-promotion today in a world of social media and a world, you know, that largely Dri Dribble has contributed to. Uh, but there's so many other aspects to it, uh, beyond just the sort of very public self-promotion to the, to the way of working a, uh, you know, the corporate hierarchies, um, the way of getting your first gigs and, and trying to get work and stuff like that. So I, I thought maybe a good place to start was maybe hearing a little bit about your background and how you got started, um, and some of those experiences. That'd be all right. Yeah, that's totally cool. So my, um, entry into design is very, 
strange. So I started <laughs> off, um, I, I really went to college for business and I was in a five year MBA program, which is basically like a four plus one to bachelor's plus master's year, mm-hmm. but all put together in a five year program. Um, and I was going to be a business person, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> business. Inter- <laughs> yes, business um, with a capital B. Yep. Um, and I was, and I did a few internships. Um, and then I really decided that I did not like being a business person. Um, and so one of my internships, um, I can talk about it now, but like um, I interned at NASA. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I was with the space the space station group. I saw the space station budget analyst. So I went through all of the budgets and reconciled grants and everything for the space station group. My wow. job was really, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a lot of time on that job to like play on the internet. Um, and during that time, the internet was like booming. People were starting to like make their own personal sites. Um, and I used to hang out on this message board, um, and I ran into this community of people who like did design, um, and a little kind of contact was, um, I was kind of an art geek in high school. Um, I was in international baccalaureate and that's like this four year prep program. But like, um, one of the things is that like you take classes at what they call higher level and subsidiary level. So I took art at at higher level, which means I spent four years working on my art portfolio huh. to um, to essentially display it in my senior year. So um, I was examined on all of that work over time with all my sketchbooks and everything for the four years. So I spent a lot of time on my art in high school. And then when I left for college, um, when my mom cleaned up my room and the group, like I came back and like all of my art was thrown away. And so it was like, um, this is like, it was tragic. I'm like yes. <laughs> Like, oh, like four years of my life all thrown away. It's like, oh, no, this is a hobby. You just did that in high school, right? Like, you did that to graduate, whatever. And so I was on this internship, and I was super bored. And I was like, I really hate this. I can't do this for the rest of my life. And then I found this group of people that, like, were making money doing this thing. And I was like, holy crap, this is really cool. I did not know that you could do this. And so I started, I, I can't remember what version of Photoshop it was, but you, I pirated Photoshop. Um, and I started like making my own stuff and trying to like get really good. Um, and then like I was, I I dropped out of the MBA program and just got my bachelor's and left. And then I still didn't know what to do with myself. And so I still didn't really think that that was a viable, um, solution because, um, I wasn't really great. And these people have been doing it for a really long time. So I was pretty intimidated. And at the time I had taken some history courses, a part of my undergrad. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'll be a history professor. So let me just go like um, to grad school. So I went to grad school um, for history all this time. I'm still like tinkering. So I get to grad school um, and I took a co-op at a, at a history museum, a, a small black history museum. Um, and they needed people to make things for them because they had a very limited budget and they often couldn't afford to pay professional designers. And I started, so I was there to help curate art and um, help them understand the archives and everything that a historian would do in a museum. But I end up becoming their graphic designer. Mm. Um, and I started to get decently good at that point because I had just been practicing and trying to mimic um, designs that I illustrator and kind of really teach myself programs and I used to steal people's code from the front of their websites and they would email me and say hey I realize you're stealing my code because you're hot linking my images right? so like 
this like whole self-taught territory. And so I was at the museum and making things for people. And I was like, you know, this could be something. And I was like, um, but I still was like, I still wasn't as good as I wanted to be. Like I, I would look at my friends work and say, okay, look, this guy is really good. This community is really good. My work just doesn't look like this. I like, I'm going to need to study. So I spent some time looking up school. So long story short, I ended up applying to PhD programs and BFA programs at the same time. <laughs> My parents were like, what are you doing? Like, you already did this one thing and now you're switching and that's okay. This is still respectable, but like, what are you like, what are you doing? Um, and I ended some crazy schools ended up letting me in. Like, I was surprised that I actually got um, any BFA program, but I got into some, some decently good schools. So I decided to do that. And so, um, <laughs> I moved, um, from my hometown where I went to college and went through a series of BFA programs. I went to one school and then I transferred to Kansas city. Um, and I left and, um, during that time, you know, I like interned. So I had really good internships, the, the real good advantage of like kind of having been a little bit older than most people who are in my class, I really knew why I was there. Um, and I just really just stayed in the studio and hunkered down. And I was like participating in the AIGA as a student. Hmm. And so I just really threw myself into it. I was like, if I'm going to do this thing, I just have to like, it has to be all or nothing. Got some good internships, interned at Converse and Payless. Um, and then um, it was like the height of the recession when we finished like oh nine. Right. Um, and no one was really hiring. It was really hard to get a job um, out of design school then because like no one was hiring designers. But mm. because I had like spent so much time and m- the majority of my portfolio um, was not school projects. I had published work. I was able to get my first job at Reebok. Um, and they had this apprentice program. I think it's still running now where basically you apply and then you come uh, to Canton. Massachusetts and you work under a principal designer at Reebok um, and you can do that for soft goods and hard goods and then they have a graphics program so I went to Massachusetts um, and worked with some good folks at Reebok and spent a year there like designing for baby shoes and baby clothes and little girls clothes and really understanding like uh, the practical application of graphic design um, in a business setting and you know doing shirts so that was my first job. Um, I, I learned a lot. I really learned what I didn't want to do. Um, but I, you know, I learned a lot and it just took off from there. So really windy path. Not one of these people who are like, Oh yeah, I knew when I was 10, I wanted to be a designer and I was like <laughs> drawing letters, all that kind of thing. Right. Like really strange kind of like take a gamble path. And I think it's worked out. Um, decently well for me so that's my story yeah so there's there's a couple interesting parts to that one of which is that you were a essentially a practicing designer before you studied the craft that is right you found that it was something you found compelling um and found a way to practice that at the job that you had which um you know sounds sounds almost coincidental but also kind of making your own way and saying these are the things that i want to do and um um, and essentially building the beginnings of a portfolio, uh, with actual work. Yes. So I find that, um, a, a lot of the conversation around, like I, you know, I have been, uh, trying to do some design, I'm studying design, uh, but nobody wants to even, uh, bring me in for an interview without a portfolio. So people doing, uh, essentially fake work, we could call it fake work, conceptual work, or, you know, taking a, 
taking a brand and doing a redesign of it and and posting it on something like Dribble or or Behance or something like that. What do you think about uh, that? I know there's been some kind of conversation about that in the last couple of months that I've seen, at least on Twitter, around some of the designers uh, yeah, thinking through that. Kind of thing. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, it's it is. I think there's a lot to learn from that type of work. I think you get um, really understand a designer's perspective, their own lens. When I left design school, people's people were like sort of having portfolio if you had a portfolio it's that you were really cutting edge like i left when i left school you still had the black you the big black bag and you <laughs> yes interview and you toted your portfolio with you and you opened it up and you people inspected your craft you had white gloves to make sure your work stayed clean huh. i kind of yeah. came out of a little different era um well, i mean we did css and dream we were in design school but like that was still like pretty far out and now i feel like there are so many different people who have made their way to this field, which is still evolving itself, right? Like there's like really not any, I think there's maybe one or two like formed product designer um, in the digital sense programs, but people who come from that field come from all different types of experiences. Um, so I think like there's a lot to be learned from like conceptual work. I think there's also like a range of conceptual work, like, I don't want to like um, badmouth dribble or anything, but um, like if there, if I was plotting it on a spectrum, I would say some of the work there just doesn't go deep enough. To do is show off their perspective and show off their skill set. Yeah, I think what they need to be kind of conscientious about is like the the depth of what they're showing, right? Like, is it eye candy? Like, is it just like pure visual design? Great. Um, can you make it work? Like, what are the constraints? Um, that's when it starts to show some depth. So like people kind of like making their own products, um, or their own little side projects that like, you know, get, gain traction, whether it's like someone's using it or just displaying that, like what they're making has some value, whether it's mon monetary or through users or through attention or something. So I think like the world is their oyster in terms of that, because there's like so much, um, the tool sets are free or very low cost. Um, there's lots of information about how to get started now. Um, so I think people, I think massive um, market of just the designers making things, but I still think there's a ton of opportunity to show value and designers that can like show value um, are leaps and bounds ahead of people who are just like making eye candy um, just for their Twitter followers. Sure. So like, you know, I'm like looking at portfolios and people applying to, on the teams that I've run or I'm running. Um, and, you know, when I'm like evaluating portfolios, I just, I need for people to understand that when they come into whatever business context, their design has to be applicable. Um, it will have massive constraints around business objectives. Um, and that's just a different way of thinking than people who are just making pure art or eye candy. Sure. Sure. And there's places for that in business too, but like, you just have to be like really um, the context just has to be very clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I often, you know, I take it as when when doing a quick scan of portfolios, I take it almost as like, all right, this is a first impression. This is a sense of like, does my taste align with yours, or does the what I think I need for this project align with how you're expressing yourself? You kind mm -hmm. of get a sense of that, um, but that's got that's I mean that's like two percent of what I need to know about the person before I can work with them, right? Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I agree with you on the depth and, and, and really what we're talking about is like creating a narrative around the work, aren't we? Exactly. That's totally it. Um, yeah. And, and even when designers come in and they like have very, um, obvious application, they've worked at X place and they've done these projects, being able to really fundamentally understand what the objective are, what they are trying to achieve is super important because, um, designers have such a huge place, like, I'm in business now and be able to articulate um, our value and our worth and how we're like moving the needle from a business objective is super important. Um, Even I I think even for myself, as I like advance in my career, I'm just coming to understand that more and more. I think even I have like underestimated it, but the more senior I get, the more important I see like every decision is going to be around that. Like, you know, can you even get headcount for your team? It's going to be based on like, how, how are you fundamentally helping the business move forward? Right. Um, so it's just, it's such a critical thing. And so, um, as a design leader, you need a team that like fundamentally understands that and can help support you in kind of in that, in that journey. Um, and anyone who can't do that is almost a liability. So (laughs) even if like, we're talking about like, as your skill sets evolves, like, okay, like there's like your craft and your vision and your eye being discerned, but then like there's all these other skills that designers need to be able to talk and communicate um, and be able to collaborate with teams and, you know, be inventive. So there's just, there's just been more and more asked of designers uh, than even when I was coming out of school. So yeah, yeah, which I think is great. Frankly, it is, I think, an acknowledgement and representation of the value of design um, in that more being asked of designers, meaning they have more input and ability to affect overall business strategy rather than just being considered like, oh, we have a couple of designers that help us, you know, pretty things up before it goes out. So, yeah, I think I'm I'm with you there. I think what my worry is, it's just there's not a great path for how to get those skills. Yes. Oh, I agree. Um, and, and like, you know, um, I feel like design education hasn't kept up with that. And it's sort of self-perpetuating. Like, it's really hard. People ask me all the time, like, how do I get a job? And it's like, okay, if you can get someone to take a chance on you, then you get into an environment where you learn it and then you get good at it. And then the next time people are not, you're like adding value. People aren't taking a chance on you. They're like, they want you. Right. And then it sort of perpetuates, but like the first kind of like getting your foot in the door is super difficult. And I don't have a clear path of advice to give people when they ask me, like, what is the three things that should be doing? Because right. it's just super unclear how you get that experience. So one of the pieces of advice that I would often give people, and you tell me if this still holds up or not, but uh, I would often talk about pro bono work and I would be very clear, like, now look, there are plenty of companies that would love to like, you know, exchange some, uh, free work on your behalf for some, you know, supposed exposure. Right. But I, I, I was more comfortable with the idea of like literally volunteering your time to find a community organization, a volunteer group, a, um, a church, a school or somebody who needs uh graphic design done a web presence, uh, or, or anything. And use that as a way, uh, a relatively sort of low stakes way of getting some practice because those people will have constraints that they need to put on your work. So it's one thing to go like redesign movie posters, which is a great way to learn tools and to get a sense of aesthetics and to, and to, I mean, that's how, that's how I learned to play the guitar. I copied all the 
people I admired and just copied and copied and copied until sort of my own style emerged. But to go do work for people that need it, uh, need it done, but have, will put constraint on it to say like, well, you know, here is the, the output we need. This is our audience that we have. This is the budget that we have. Like you have to work inside of all of those things, which is essentially how, um, design and business works. It's an acknowledgement uh, of constraint to build a sense of creativity on top of it. Um, and so using that as a very early way uh, in your career of building up uh, some work uh, and, and starting to develop those skills and hopefully something you can put in a portfolio and say, hey, I have done some actual work. Yeah, I think that still holds up to some degree. So there's two things that kind of come to my mind immediately. Hmm. There's a sort of social media kind of um, attitude now where like everyone's like, pay me what I'm worth, <laughs> you know, like. Yep. Yep. Exposure doesn't pay the bills, right? So I feel like there's a lot of people who are like less willing to do like heavy projects for free for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I also, and I'm, this is something. This is like not a. This is going to be a totally half baked thought that I'm throwing <laughs> out. It's something that I've been thinking about and haven't been able to formally articulate. Maybe we can do it on this podcast. Let's give like, it a shot. <laughs> I feel like companies in general are less willing to grow people in the same ways they used to be. Interesting. And especially like if you think about tech and startups, like things are moving so fast that um, it is really hard to like nurture a junior person um, in the same way that I was nurtured. Like, um, and even the idea that like Reebok took out time and said, Hey, we're going to nurture these junior people. Right. Like, that is a thing that doesn't happen a ton. If you look at, like, all of the job openings, it's, like, senior designer, senior engineer, mid-level. Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, um, and even just thinking about the pace of the of the um, environments that I've been in over maybe the last five or six years, like, the idea of, like, having a couple of junior designers on hand, like, freaks me out because um, the level of mentorship required to get someone from say junior to mid-level so it takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of times the businesses don't have aren't set up well to do that especially like hyper growth startups and in tech so um someone showing up with like oh yeah i did work with um june's lawnmower service (laughs) (laughs) you know like they're showing they're showing promise Right. Like it's like good work. You know, you can get them there. It's like almost like, do I have time? Like, this is the best environment for that person to be in. So I think like if you're going to do that kind of work, it also needs to be in context of maybe like slower paced industries or um, design and other contacts. And it seems like when we say design now, it's almost, and maybe this is my bias, but it's almost always like we're talking about design and tech. Yeah. And so thinking about other places, maybe it's book publishing or, or somewhere else um, that people can get experience in slower moving industries. Cause right. like I, I just even just thinking aloud right now, it's just like you can't have a team of junior designers the same way you used to be able to. I know my first, even in my second job, there are a couple of us. There's like four or five of us at Puma. Right. So um, I can't imagine a team in a tech company. Well, a team, at least the size of um, ours having a, a lot of junior designers on it. 
Hey, all you freelancers out there, you know how important it is to make smart decisions for your business, right? Our friends at FreshBooks can save you up to 192 hours with their cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculously easy to use. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has dramatically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. Let me give you just two examples. First, their new notification center is like your personal assistant. You'll always know what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what needs to be dealt with pronto. Here's another example. When you email a client for an invoice, FreshBook can show you whether they've seen it or not, which totally puts an end to all of the guessing games around communicating with your clients. If you're listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now is the time to try it. FreshBooks are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show. No credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash presentable and enter presentable in the how did you hear about us section. That's it. That's all you have to do. 30-day free trial. Thanks to FreshBooks for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. There's another aspect of that too, which is I think I even slip into the kind of unconscious thought that early in your career as a designer uh, always equates with early in your life as a human, which is not necessarily true. Becoming a, a designer or switching to design, like you switch to design, albeit early in your career, you sort of realize like, you know, space is glamorous, but budgets are not. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, but this idea of moving in, into like, oh, you know what, I'm, I, I, I want to move in, into other opportunities now. And maybe, you know, you're like 35 or 40 or something. And the idea of doing work for free or internships or something, frankly, uh, is a privilege that, that people can, like, I, I have a means of subsisting while I do this, that, that people, you know, that perhaps have family and, and, and things like that, literally, they can't do. So, um, so it's interesting. I wonder if the, the idea of, like, trying to find some early work, it feels like there's some contradiction, some tension in that. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but um, I'm looking as well, so try to figure that out but <laughs> but the mid-career change you know that's something i think uh often like i don't think people talk about that as much you know have you run into designers that are like in their 30s and they're just an intern in the industry yeah i have a lot of as you can imagine like a lot of people reach out to me and say like hey didn't, you've had this career tell me how i can have one like that and so mm-hmm. um and so yeah i have had people that have spent time doing other things and, and, um, and realized like, no, I have a passion for, for design, uh, that I've not realized. And I'm, you know, exploring that now. So I guess that makes sense in the context of like general assembly and some of these other programs that are like, Hey, come learn design at any stage of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that junior design thing though, and people taking the time, you know, that's interesting. Like I have been thinking about careers. So, um, there's a, a book called principles by Ray Dalio. He's the founder of, um, Bridgewater, right? Yes, I have it in my Kindle. It's up next to reading. It's good. It's not. Yeah, I, I found it's not the kind of book you just sit down and read through for you know a week or so. It, I, I come back to it and forth, and it is almost like a series of blog posts. It works really well like that. But um, it's it's interesting context for the period of history that he was working in and stuff like that. But so much good stuff out of there. One of this is this framework for thinking about a career. Uh, that he puts into three parts. Uh, one is getting started, you know, your first work, your first job, the stuff we're talking about, uh, where we had lots of ambition and trying to match that ambition to opportunity. Uh, the second is getting a seat at the table, right? This sort of like accumulation of power, really, that uh, people try to build up in their career, growing their influence, um, 
trying to grow their salary, their wealth, things like that. And then this third period that he calls giving back, which is when you make the choice to uh, essentially, uh, if you have been successful, to kind of savor what life has available to you. And and that goes in kind of two directions. Some people get very focused on their legacy. Like, I don't want to be forgotten. I don't want to make sure my work persists. Whereas other people think a lot more about what are the opportunities that I can have to help the next generation into go from this period of getting started into getting a seat at the table. Um, and I found that, you know, sort of interesting. And, and I think that's a continuum. I don't think people choose one or the other. But um, this idea of the seat at the table, uh, this idea of like, it's being offered or it's being taken and permission. And like, I just think there's a whole bunch tied up around that uh, and find it uh, interesting from, you know, getting into this like later stage of my career and thinking about how I might be helpful for people coming into their career and things like that. I don't know if you've thought much about that. I think you have. I saw you, 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 you gave a great talk at uh, the uh, Behance conference to, uh, around some of that stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to you talk. I'm like, what stage am I in? I think I'm still in the accumulation, uh, stage. Um, not, I'm still in my thirties. So I still, I think I feel Congratulations. Like I have a lot of left. Um, but yeah, I get a lot of emails too. Um, I think for me and I think, um, just for women of color and black people, um, in this particular industry, like you cannot be like visible and not have like a lot of people kind of reaching out to you. Um, because there are a lot of people hungry to be in this industry and they just don't understand how to break into it, um, and get opportunities. So it's almost like if you have any visibility, any visibility, you're going to be called upon to give back. And I feel kind of really strongly about that as having had some modicum of success and, um, and some visibility. So um, I, I really would want my legacy to be um, about how I, how I help people um, get into this industry. I have like, if you researched me, which I'm sure you did to have me on this podcast, you know, I have really strong views about um, participatory design and making sure that design reflects communities uh, and community involvement in design uh, because design is hoarding a bunch of power um, and as an industry, we have not interrogated the political nature of design the way we should um, and the way that we're building architecting culture and this very small group of people having all of this uh, basically power over um, what people use in their daily lives. So I have really strong views about like distributing that. And so part of my, um, I guess, professional walk in life is to bring more people along with me and the more the better um there's i'm i'm competitive with myself but i think there's just so much pie in this industry that like we just we just need more folks in it um to broaden the perspective um and so you know that's my view um on that so as i kind of like continue to like be on this windy road of my career and make transitions and changes um still just really feel strongly about like reaching out do office hours Kind of semi semi regularly. Let me let me ask you just take a little detour here. It's it sounded like you were you were saying participatory design as a way of distributing power. Did did, did I understand that correctly? Yes, that's interesting. That's um, that's not a framing that I think I've heard uh, very often, um, but it's really intriguing. Like I have always thought very much about 
design and specifically the kind of design that I have always practiced, which is user research or user experience as this, this ethnographic way of understanding the, the true nature of, of how people exist and succeed and struggle in the world as a way of generating ideas to, to uh, use technology to apply to as solutions to those things or opportunities to those things. And, um, and the, I think what you're saying is very true that there have been, frankly, even the people in the user research community, user experience community have generally done that, although almost entirely for people that are more like, like more or less like them. Right. So, um, so this idea of, of, of using those techniques as a way to reach out to perhaps more underrepresented communities as a way to bring them in and say this, the, the needs and the problems and the opportunities are as valid for them as they are for anybody else. And we can use these skills and these, these research methodologies as ways of kind of breaking down those divides. I don't know what, am yeah. I on the right track here? You are, you're totally on the right track. And I even like, I even question, um, some of our methodologies, like just, you know, um, I, I kind of cut my teeth, the idea of the, of the designer. Yeah. Um, and that was a really critical point in my career because I got to see a lot of different projects in, across a bunch of different industries in the different stages. And, you know, as IDEO, they kind of go through various methodologies that they kind of kind of, you know, um, evolve and own, uh, for their projects. And so it, it, it sparked in my head, um, this idea that even, um, this idea of a singular methodology that, um, we use across different communities, like, does that even make sense? Hmm. Like, so like what I'm talking to you about is all the stuff I plan to do when I retire. (laughs) It's like, hopefully no one beats me to the punch, but I really want to think these things through and probably write a book. I have um, a Trello board full of like half written essays sure. um, and, and have big thoughts around this. But like just even thinking um, of like, okay, um, a benevolent group of folks um, working in developing countries using certain design methodologies on communities. Like, does that even make sense? Right, right. It sounds like um, sort of design imperialism to me. Right. Um, and so I have a bunch of questions about like, how does that work um, in, in general, have a sense that like the, the way we think about design is very paternalistic. Like, okay, we'll go in and we'll ask these people, these questions, we'll engage them to this point, but really us designers are going to go off and kind of find the solutions. Um, Interesting. It, yeah. To me that just, that has a lot of parallels to other ugly parts of history that just, that we've already started to ask questions about, but we don't in, we don't in design. Um, and I really want to formally interrogate that. So, um, that's what I plan to do. Um, when I, when I retire and, and get gray hair, time you know, that. yeah, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's, it's interesting. It, it kind of brings to mind some of the experiences that I had, uh, when we were doing some work at Adobe and, uh, the launch of the creative cloud, uh, needing to be, uh, localized and internationalized, uh, to 20 or 30 different, uh, geographies to start with, and then many more beyond that. I remember the challenge we had there, thinking like, how on earth um, internationalization, translation, all that kind of stuff. Sure, you know, um, there's systems in place for being able to get the words into the right place, but the localization, meaning that the design and the language and the messaging around uh, the everything that's being offered matches the culture in which it's going to be consumed. I was like, how on earth, right? Can we possibly 
like a group of designers sitting in San Francisco possibly get that right uh, and realize, no, that obviously we need designers in those cultures who are empowered to make their own choices about how these um, these designs come together based on as much shared understanding as we can develop with them. But it's not like we can go to uh, Tokyo and sit down and do all of the design. Uh, I didn't feel like we we're rem- remotely qualified. So I, I, it feels a parallels to that, I think, as well. Um, design imperialism is an interesting uh, phrase for that. It feels uh, totally appropriate. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like we're just really behind on, on those conversations, but I just, I don't know. I just feel like the, no one's asking those questions and I, I would love to be able to ask those questions. Mm. Um, I just, you know, I'm so busy, like just in my day to day life and trying to like keep a roof over my head and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and this kind of stuff requires a ton of thought, but, um, when I, when I think a lot about like, you know, what can my, my personal like background and then even like so my educational training, like have, having gone through grad school for history, like how do those kind of um, disciplines start to emerge um, in my life? Um, and it's around like asking some of those questions. I think I'm the yeah. perfect person to do that. Um, I think I'm like well suited to, to do that um, kind of work is just like really starting to make time for it. And yeah. I would love um, for more of that type of thinking to pop up in form in design formal education as well yeah Yeah, Um, yeah. you're training a bunch of designers and like we're we're sitting them out on the world and they just do not understand the power of their work in the context and yeah i think it's time for us just to become a little bit more political of a profession yeah yeah i I agree and you mentioned earlier we were talking a bit about that like that third phase of a career as as giving back and and mentorship is an opportunity there and it sounded like you you mentioned uh for example your one of your internships and feeling very connected to a mentor uh i've also heard people talk about sponsorship as a either a component of mentorship or an alternative to it um both of those seem very interesting. What's your experience been with that? Yeah. So, um, I think I've been super lucky. Like, um, a lot of time people reach out to me, especially women of color. They're like, Oh, you're like, I see you with so-and-so and and you know, so-and-so like, how did that happen? Um, and, um, actually this is one of my side projects that I hope to get off the ground this year is starting to introduce, introduce, um, women of color designers to, um, design luminaries. So, Jeff, I'll be reaching out to you probably sometime this year. <laughs> Great. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Luminary. I like that. I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> um, but like, but like, seriously, like I have had so many people who have gone to bat for me. Um, and that's what, why I'm able to be where I am is literally off this year. Like people saying, I'm going to put my name on the line for you. Um, I believe in you. I'm going to get you there. Um, I want to do this. And um, like so many generous people, like if just, it, I just, I'd like, I just can't even count them all. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm just very lucky in that regard. And that like, there are people who like are going to bat for me when I'm not in the room. And then there are people who I can just turn to. Like the other day I had like questions about um like my salary trajectory and things like that and like am i in the right place in my career and i reached out to someone and he's he's like hey give me 20 minutes and he sent me an email all because he's like he's been vp of design and tech company and so he was able to really kind of help me understand and thinking about those types of things like it just just from the smallest things of that to Mm -hmm. people just saying hey 
when I was looking for job opportunities in the past, let me introduce you to these people in my Rolodex. Um, I have just had so many people invest in me that I'm extremely thankful for. And I don't know like why I have been um, blessed with that, but it has happened. And um, I think like 50% of like 60% of my success, I would chop up to those people just really like going to bat for me. And then 40% being like a combination of luck and hard work. Mm, Uh, I think there's something to like making yourself like investable or making people think that you're like a art, there's ROI and investing in you. Um, and of course, I have a half bait blog about that. But like, <laughs> <laughs> um, if people feel like you know, like you're a good investment, you start to just get more and more dividends um, and pay pay dividends out to people. Like, whether it's like you giving back, them seeing you giving back, them seeing you like grow um, based on their recommendations, um, taking their advice um, seriously, um, thanking them. Like, there's a there's a bunch of things you can do uh, to make people feel like, you know, this is a wise investment of my time. Because everyone, even myself, you know, you you know, we go to work every day. We only have like a small amount of time, and we have about 50 requests. And so it's like, okay, out of these 50 requests, I can do maybe five. Like, who are the five people I'm gonna pick? Um, so I think there's something to making yourself um, look investable in that regard. But like there's also just a ton of luck around it too. And I think it just starts, I think I talked about this in my 99 you talk, but it also just starts to um, multiply. Like once you're a certain space, you just have access to different arena people and that just pays off and it just continues to pay off. So once you can get the ball rolling, kind of there's just like a snowball effect that you can take advantage of. I'm, I'm wondering how explicit you were in uh, developing a mentor relationship. Like, did you go out and find people and say, hey, I'm looking for this sort of coaching, essentially, this sort of support? Or did you more fall into it with the opportunities like at internships and early jobs? I think there was a mix. So I've like introduced myself to people in the street. I would say, hey. I'm here. I'd like to meet you. I'd like to talk to you. And people either have said yes or no. And then there are people who have reached out to me. I think my best mentorship, so my best mentorship relationships are relationships that are reciprocal. Um, they feel like I'm getting a lot of it, but it's very clear that the the mentor is also getting a lot of out of it too. One thing that I've kind of learned is I, you know, I have a lot to offer. Um, I'm not shy about shy about saying that. And I kind of know what those things are. And so I've been able to help my mentors as much as they've been able to help me. And I've seen them grow even publicly in some of the things they've done, especially around inclusive inclusivity. Um, and so giving them as much as they give me has been super important. And those have been the best relationships um, so also too, I just want to point out, there's like a difference. So mentorships are like relationships that are kind of based on advice and, um, and experience and their sponsorships. And those are basically people who are putting their kind of, um, their name and credibility on the line for you. Um, in, 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 in the idea that get you more opportunities. Um, so it's a very kind of different relationship. And then there's coaches who kind of hold you accountable for growing, um, I'll, I have a coach too. Um, and I've always had a coach. Um, and those are, mo- those are relationships around more situational things than less mm. on like, you know, on a kind of like basis. So just oh. want to point that out for people who might not know the difference between the three that oh, I listen yeah. to this. Question. No, that's great. I'm a huge advocate for coaching. Um, yes. uh, it feels a little more 
uh, mid-career sort of thing, frankly, because it's expensive uh, unless you get your company to pay for it. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, but it is. It, I find it's it's valuable. I mean, it's essentially professional therapy. It is a place where you can go and <laughs> and even if you just need an hour a week to complain about your coworkers, but do that in a context of somebody listening and providing some guidance and and things like that. Like, uh, just so good, so good. Absolutely. I was gonna say you you stole my words. I was gonna say I found out like when I moved out here that into San Francisco that like two people you needed a coach and a therapist and all the people that I know who are super successful have, have those two. It's sort of like, a, um, yeah, <laughs> the, don't really um, talk about it, but then when you kind of one-on-one, you're like, Oh yeah, you got a coach and a therapist. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a slightly different conversation in London. The, the, uh, not quite as, um, I think open about the therapy than, than we were in Northern California, but, um, Hey, fair enough. You know, there's a leadership in, from California there. Let's talk about this. Everybody. Yeah. I can't tell you how many like parties I'd be at in San Francisco where somebody would just open a conversation with, I was talking to my therapist yesterday and she said like, yep, yes. this is great. That's great. <laughs> of course you were. You should be. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Christy, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you, uh, coming on the show. Um, let's see, where, where can we find more about you? You're Christy T that's, uh, Christy with a Y T and T. Uh, on Twitter, we'll send some people over there and see uh, what you're thinking about. Any anything else you'd like to plug? Um, not at this time. And I've also oh, I haven't even been on Twitter that much lately. I've been really trying to be more self reflective lately. But yeah. yes, I'll be tweeting again. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great place to find me. I'm gonna take a little break too. It's been nice, to be perfectly honest. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, great. Hey, um, like I said, thanks so much for being on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.